And uh, it's really a very nice book. It tells many stories. The uh, autobiography, of course, you can't beat it. But the trouble with it is, from the den standpoint of a disciple, he's very self-deprecating. And we who knew him, um, he was just as great as Sri Yukteswar, just as great as Lahiri Mahajai, just as great as Babaji. And uh, so I'm glad I could tell a few stories uh, about him. Every time I do anything like that, though, look, I would advise you all, I can't advise Gandhi, but everybody else, don't get old. <laughs> Gandhi is three months older than I am. Hmm. Anyway, I'm very happy to be with you all. And uh, I have to say, it's a great satisfaction to me. Let me just speak personally for a moment. I spent so many years trying to serve Master. And to see you all here, smiling, loving, blissful, happy, kind to each other, respectful of each other, these are all attitudes that I'm so happy. I'm. Somebody asked me, what are you proudest of? I'm not proud of anything, but I have to say I am proud of you. So, thank you. I want to read to you from this book of mine, of Yogananda's. It's the characteristics that he showed. And... Uh, <clears throat> In a way, a great master like that has no characteristics. He is trigunarahitam, beyond the three gunas, beyond all characteristics. And yet, as the sunlight filters through the clouds, it can take on the colors of a rainbow. It can take on uh, different aspects through clouds and so on. And so a master in manifesting in this world has to express something. And I have tried to capture things in which he was consistent. I never knew him, for example, to be, uh, to talk down to anybody. I remember one time somebody wrote him a letter scathingly talking about all the faults that he saw in Master. Really, it was just as a reflection of what he had in himself. But when Master saw him again, I was there. Master said, Boone, you should take up writing. That's the best letter Satan ever wrote me. <laughs> and he didn't mean that sarcastically. It was with complete respect. The mark of a great man is that he respects everybody. And this was Master. He treated all people equally and was as respectful toward any garage mechanic as towards someone prominent in the world of politics, business, or the arts. He used to walk with a cane, not uh, usually because he needed one, but because to him a, a cane was like the danda, or wooden staff, which many swamis carry in India as a reminder to keep their spines straight and to live more at their own spinal center. 
A few days before he left his body, he went to a dilapidated shop to buy a new cane. It was a small item, but he wanted to be a conscientious custodian of the organization's money, so he bargained carefully. Once he got the price he thought right, however, he looked about him, seeing what a very poor shop it was. He gave the owner much more money than he saved by bargaining. <laughs> You're a gentleman, sir, said the owner, and thereupon gave him a very handsome cane. Back at Mount Washington hours later, I remember the master saying, That man was so poor. He had a linoleum floor. I think I'll buy him a carpet. And this was someone he didn't even know. You remember that beautiful story of one time they were traveling. Debbie was with him on this occasion. And I heard the story from Debbie that he said, and he said, stop the car, stop the car. And the car pulled over to the curb. Master got up, got out, walked back a few shops, went inside, and it was just a sort of a variety shop. And Master picked up a few items, and Debbie thought, what will he ever use that junk for? It didn't have any value at all. But when he brought it back to the counter, the lady was getting very excited. And when she totaled it up, she said, I very badly needed just this amount of money uh, today. And it was nearly closing time, and I was afraid I wouldn't get it. God himself must have sent you. And so it was that things always happened to help other people. He didn't think about his own needs because he had none. But you remember that story of the motorcycle when it was the most beautiful gift he'd ever been given? He was a young man then. And uh, um, and he would drive together in this motorcycle, Suyukteshwar in the sidecar, and people called him for a while, the motorcycle Swami. <laughs> and uh, he came out of the house one day, and he saw an acquaintance gazing, gazing at this, this uh, um, motorcycle with great longing. And Master said, it's nice, isn't it? He said, oh, if only I could have one. Master said, well, you can. It's yours. And he said, well, what do you mean? How much are you asking for it? He said, no, I'm giving it to you. And he went in and got the certificate, the paper of ownership, and signed it over to him, just gave it him. He said, he, I couldn't enjoy a thing if I see somebody else wanting it. And this attitude of constantly giving and constantly, I told you, where is Narayani? Bring me my batteries. I have to have these hearing aids. And I said to Narayani, my hearing aids are fine, but they might go out right in the middle of the satsang, and they're starting to beep at me. <laughs> so, thank you. And uh, then there was this other lovely time. Actually, it was a very funny occasion. I've never seen Master laugh so hard. There was, I think I've told you this, but listen, don't worry. <laughs> You might as well endure it again. <laughs> um, 
There was a, a man who had known his brother, Vishnu Ghosh, and uh, Vishnu was a, a uh, Vishnu was a physical culturist, and he sent one somebody over to meet Master. It was a boxer, and he was probably okay in the boxing ring, but he also fancied himself a do uh, a dancer. And this he was not. Anyway, they had a function for uh, a group of spastics, a sort of a fundraiser for them. And this man decided he would dance for the occasion. So he did a dance of a a, uh, a hunter chas chasing a deer. And it went on interminably. Now, you're a dancer, so you know something about this. He went lumbering around this like a lumberjack. <laughs> and, uh, you know, dancing in the boxing ring is a little bit different from classical Indian dancing. And uh, at one point, he was such an egotist that uh, he, p p was, he stopped the orchestra, stepped down to the, uh, to the proscenium and said, I apologize for this orchestra. They don't keep time with me. <laughs> 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 and so... Every time he'd dance, he'd go, <laughs> try to get them in rhythm. And <laughs> we were, I was sitting next to Master. He was just, tears were rolling down his cheeks and mine. It was just too, too delightful. And then finally, finally, the, the deer was killed. And there, were, there was a little scattered applause thinking that this is over now. Oh, no, we forgot. <laughs> there was still the hunter. And the hunter threw the deer over his, over his shoulders and sort of went into a victory cakewalk. <laughs> it was just too funny for words. And yet, you know, the beautiful thing... Well, I'll finish the story there. Finally, we saw somebody in the orchestra going like this to the sidelines, and the curtain began to come down. <laughs> and... All we saw was his feet, his legs, striding <laughs> angrily. <laughs> oh, it was too good. But, you know, afterwards, um, this man was very outraged at the way he'd been mistreated. And Master said, I understand. And the beautiful thing was, he did understand. He could laugh at the absurdity of it. But at the same time, he felt for this poor man. He was in everybody. And I remember there was a drunken man there, Indian, and he was throwing his arms around Master's shoulders in a very familiar way that none of us would have dared. And uh, Debbie Mukherjee, this Bengali, said to him something in Bengali about this man's drunkenness. And Master said uh, he didn't want him to, to uh, show that disrespect, even if the man was drunk. This kind of respect for everybody, it takes a great man to have that kind. Usually people look for somebody they can look down on. In a sense, Master was in a position to look down on everybody, yet he looked up to everybody. He saw God in everybody. And as he was, so should we be. So that wherever you are, always look for the good qualities in people. Don't look for their faults. Always think that this is God in this form.
It was a beautiful story of Sri Ramakrishna. A woman came to him who said, I don't have time to meditate. I have this little child, and I have to keep taking care of the child. And uh, he said, then think of the child as Balakrishna, and just treat the child with that kind of love that you would give to Krishna. And so we should have that kind of sincere love for everybody. I know everybody is foolish in one way or another, but everybody is also a manifestation of God. And if you can see that in other people, then you begin to see it in yourself. So the greatest benefit of this is what it does for you. When you respect others, then you will begin to feel that, yes, and God is also in you. It would help a lot to always, you know, I, I watched a very poor movie about the miracle of Fatima. That's a beautiful story. The movie is lousy. But to see the Divine Mother in form, you know, they, when you see God in form, for instance, Jagannath, you don't see God as, uh, could somebody give me a Kleenex? I can't reach it. There, thank you. Yeah, you know the Jagannath. They have his arms truncated. When you look at the picture of Kali, um, it, it's uh, it's not pretty at all. <laughs> yeah, we have her with four arms. Well, that's okay. That explains her four movements. But her hair streaming out like a harridan, and these skulls around her as a garland, standing on her husband's chest, her tongue lolling out. It's a fearsome image, but in fact, it's all symbolic and beautiful. The four arms depict Mother Nature, creative, preservative, and destructive. And then the one hand, hand out in blessing to those who uh, are her devotees. And the garland of skulls is really that she, it means that she's present in all minds. But... Uh, Skulls, why not, why not heads? Well, life is temporary, but she's always with us. And why is, she, why is her hair all over like this in such a straggling way? Because the energy, the hair represents energy. This is why many yogis grow their hair long. And this is a, a distinct advantage that women have. But um, I must say, I had long hair for a while. It looked terrible. Anyway... <laughs> Anyway, um, that represents the energy of Mother Nature all over creation. And Mother is Om. Mother is God in movement. When God takes on form, he moves, uh, that still vibration of spirit moves. And that movement represents um, creation itself. Without that movement, in opposite directions, from a state of rest in the center, without that cosmic vibration, there would be no manifestation of creation. And so, um, Shiva is beyond that form, therefore he's shown as prostrate. She hasn't knocked him down with a 
rolling pin or something. It just means he's lying there motionless. And when she touches her, her foot to his chest, it doesn't mean she's conquering him. It means she's gone too far. As soon as the finite touches the infant, it has to stop. And so her tongue comes out. You know, even we, when we make a mistake, we make like that, bite our tongue. That's all it means. It's not bloodlust. It doesn't, she doesn't have to have her tongue lolling out the way it's often shown. But the thing is, this is all beautifully symbolic. And when saints see the Divine Mother, they don't see her in that form. There's a beautiful story, as I've told in this book, about Ram Prashad. He was a great Bengali mystic and singer. And uh, he wrote one song, Amon Din Ki Matara. Will that day come to me, Mother, when saying your name, my eyes will flow with tears. And he was singing that song, and he was working on a fence outside his, outside his house when his daughter came, and she was working with him and teasing him at the same time. And she said, Daddy, whom are you singing to? And he said, well, I'm singing my di to my Divine Mother, but she's very naughty. She won't, she won't uh, come to me. And the daughter said, well, if she won't come, why do you bother to sing to her? Why do you call her? And with that, she ran away laughing. And when he came inside, he told his wife about their daughter having been there helping him with the fence. And the wife said, well, it's not possible. She's on the other side of town. And when the daughter came in, he said, well, weren't you there helping me with the fence? And she said, no, Daddy, I was on the other side of town. I couldn't have been here. Then he realized it was the Divine Mother. But you see, the Divine Mother took the form of his daughter. When you hear these saints describing, I remember Master in, in uh, the meditations and so on, when he saw the Divine Mother, he said, oh, you're so beautiful. You can call Kali beautiful, let's face it. But it's not that form that they see. The Divine Mother is the per image of perfection that you yourself hold. And God can come to you in any form that you love. It could be a sacred crocodile. I can't imagine you're loving a sacred crocodile, but if you do, that's what form it would take. So the thing is, that uh, God will come to you in that form which you yourself hold as your highest ideal of perfect love and perfect bliss. And so when you pray and when you meditate, it would very much help you to think that God is in that form right now, like in this movie of Fatima. They were talking to her. If you're talking to the Divine Mother, that's the moment you can really say, I don't want anything but you. I don't want, I have, I have no desires. I lay everything at your feet. I want only to love you. I want only to serve you. I want only to, to be yours. And all my attachments, all my desires, they don't mean anything. Have that mental image and offer everything that you are to him every night before you go to sleep. You never know if you're going to wake up, 
before I had my heart surgery 16 years ago or whatever it was, um, they said to me that you must have surgery. If you don't, you could easily die in your sleep any night because your, your whatever it is, your pulse goes down so low that it, uh, it would be very easy to happen. Well, it could happen to any one of us. You never know if you're going to wake up the next morning. So always at night before you go to bed, just give everything to God. If you want to, form a bonfire and throw all your attachments and desires into that bonfire. You know, it's so easy to find God if we just understand these few simple principles. And yet, look how long it takes. It should not have to take so long. In the, it's a real scripture, the Yerubayat of Omar Khayyam. It doesn't seem to be a scripture. It seems to be a love song, but it's very symbolic. And in there, there's a passage that Master interpreted where he says that many souls that had come into Maya at the beginning of a day of Brahma are still wandering in Maya, wandering in delusion at the end of a day of Brahma. And it makes you wonder, how many days of Brahma does it take? I asked Master one time, does it always take so long? He said, oh, yes. But it doesn't have to. Once you really make up your minds that this is what you want, don't defend anything. There's nothing worth defending. Just be his. You'll find, you know, this is the typical image of a... I remember my... There was many years ago I had a blood pressure of 200 over 120. And this was uh, high enough to bring about a stroke or... A, heart attack, and it was very dangerous. And I went to my father, and I said to him, Dad, can you help me just take a cruise or something so that I can I can uh, get, get away from work and rest, rest for a while? He said, Don, you've just got to stop giving away all your money. Well, I got to go anyway. <laughs> People helped me. I hadn't given my money away. Everything you give comes back to you. Don't think that you have to do anything. It's amazing how if you have the right spirit, everything will come. There's a wonderful story of mine that I've told you all, that uh, I was going from Delhi to Calcutta, and there was a, a student from Davis who was from, um, um, not Puri, what's the, Bhubaneshwar, and... Uh, he lived from he lived there, which is not too far from Calcutta, maybe three hundred miles or less. And uh, I was sorry in going to Calcutta that I wouldn't see him because I didn't have his address. And so anyway, with this little thought in mind, when I arrived in Calcutta, there was nobody there to meet me. They had been held up by traffic, and. Uh, uh, I just didn't quite know what to do. Well, usually when that sort of thing happens, you dash to the nearest phone and pantingly dial frantically to uh, see where they are, what's happening, etc. Instead, I just said, well, Divine Mother, what have you got in mind? Just at that moment, somebody stopped in front of me. And he said, what is your good name? And I said, well, my name is Swami Kriyananda. 
He said, oh, I thought you must be here. I have a friend, and he named this man from Davis, who lived in Bhuvaneshwar. And uh, he said, I, I, I've seen your pictures uh, that he showed me. And I said, well, I've been wanting his address. Could you give me his address? He said, no need to. I've just come to Calcutta to see him. He's staying in Calcutta right now, and I'll take you to him. So I got to spend the night with my friend. How many times you will find that God does take care of you in many, many ways. Don't let yourself doubt. That is the one thing that impedes. It's sort of a static in your mental electricity. But when you just thought, think, God, I'm here for you. You tell me what to do. You direct my footsteps. I don't mean um, like an automaton, but just offer every mood up to him. You will see everything breaks well for you. But part of the attitude that brings that about is having respect for everybody. We've got to get rid of this ego, and respecting others helps us to get rid of it. Your little ego is so unimportant. Little tiny pinpoint in space. If you can just give it up, you'll not lose anything. My dad said, you've got to give up giving your money away. Well, it said it killed my money. I don't have any money. I don't have a, I don't get a salary. I don't think about these things. And it's always taken care of in some way. It's that I've found that the less I think of me, the more he thinks of me, and the more everything works out right. It's really quite amazing and well worth... You know, Americans love to experiment. Why not experiment with these thoughts? Really, they work beautifully, and life becomes a song of joy when you think this way. Master had this ability to enjoy everything with the joy of God. In this he made a strong contrast with a sadhu I much once met in Puri in India who said to me, you shouldn't enjoy anything. Well, he was not an insignificant man. He was 132 years old. It certainly takes something to live that long. But he was such a dry thing. He said, don't enjoy anything. <clears throat> I said, not even a beautiful sunset? No, nothing. What a dry outlook. My guru, by contrast, enjoyed almost everything. He was so capable of joy that every step seemed to be a joy. In his enjoyment, however, he was attached to nothing. It was always enjoyment. His enjoyment was the joy of God. He said we should enjoy the whole world, not with egoic joy, but with the joy of God. To see God's joy in everything, it's an absolutely wonderful experience. Complete non-attachment was evident, even in his eyes, the gaze of which was always, in a sense, remote from this world. I would look at him, they were unmoving, and you did like looking into eternity when you looked into those eyes. He was surprisingly innovative. Now, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, but as far as I know, he built the first motorhome. 
he called it a house car. And he traveled around the country in it. And he told me he'd invoid, invented the toilet lid. <laughs> and <clears throat> he was also, he said, the first to suggest placing the gear shift of a car on the driving shaft rather than the floor. We drove into Detroit with our invention, he told me. People were very impressed. But when people think of renunciates, they're not supposed to be interested in anything. His definition of Satchitananda was something memorable. He said not only ever existing, ever conscious, but ever new joy. That's not in the original word, Satchitananda, but ever new joy. When you have that joy inside, everything becomes wonderful. You think of new ways of doing things, you think of new ways of expressing things, and uh, this was his way. Another fact I noticed about him was that he was always completely positive. One time I mentioned something humorous, but not exactly complimentary, about someone else. He scolded me for being negative. Am I negative, sir? Sometimes, he replied, but there's a great deal of positive in your nature also. Why look at the drains, he said to us on another occasion, when there is so much beauty all around. And he said, I could, uh, if I wanted to, start naming the faults of this organization and never stop. But why think about that? Why not think of the good that it does? So think about that with people, too. I remember reading a, <clears throat> a review of a book in the Saturday Review of Literature, and they always had some little twist at the end. So there was this, would you do that for me? There was this one book they were praising. I was waiting for the but. And, of course, it came. But what I didn't like about the book. And that's, in other words, sort of damning the whole thing. Don't be a but person. <laughs> Say, yes, he's a good man. I really appreciate him. It's no great shock if he has some faults. Everybody has faults. But <clears throat> you poured too much. <laughs> It'll get cold. Either that, I'll sit here and swill for a while. <laughs> His beautiful, positive nature about everything and everyone. It was, it was uh, thrilling. He'd see the good side of them. And another aspect of him that really touched my heart was his loyalty. He was absolutely loyal. I went, I remember there was a student of his, Vladimir Rosing. He was a famous conductor and singer. And he conducted the, the Fledermaus, a German operetta by um, Strauss. Um, not Richard, Richard Strauss, I think. Anyway, it was a very mundane kind of story, um, all about flirtation and everything. And afterwards, one of the nuns said, well, it wasn't exactly the fair for renunciates, was it, Master? He said it was a good show. <laughs> he, 
because this is a friend of his. He would he was loyal to him. You could count on him always being on your side. This is a very nice thing to know that your guru is with you, even when you make mistakes. He's on your side. Don't Matt, don't worry. We all have faults. Don't worry about them. God is on your side too. God wants you to succeed. He wants you to overcome. He is not like the Christian God who is standing there condemning everyone. Really, you should sometime go to the Sistine Chapel in Rome and see the image of God behind the altar there. God is like this, and all the damned are on one side, and he's saying, get out of here. <laughs> and here are these poor, timid, blessed people. We made it. <laughs> That's not God at all. He's on your side. Never accept this stupid, not church, not Christian, but churchianity kind of concept that we're all sinners. Master used to say that the greatest sin is to call yourself a sinner. Don't say that. When you make a mistake, and in India too, they say, my papi, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Nonsense. You're a child of God. And I remember when I was, this is a very good lesson to learn. When I was 21, I decided that I needed to become, I wanted to become a hermit. And I used to smoke. And I thought, well, who ever heard of a hermit who smokes? <laughs> Where would I get the money to buy the cigarettes? <laughs> and so I decided to give it up. Well, like Mark Twain, what he said was, smoking's the easiest thing in the world to give up. I've done it a thousand times. <laughs> and that's what it was like for me, that I'd give it up, and then at lunchtime with my coffee, it, that cigarette used to taste so good that I'd, yeah, well, I'd be back in it. But I never said, and this is the important point, I wasn't on the path yet, but somehow I understood this principle, and I want to share it with you with all my heart. I never said, I have failed. I always said, I haven't yet succeeded. Say that with any fault you've got. Don't say, that's what I am. Say, I haven't yet overcome it, but I will. And then... What happened with me was, after this affirmation, I haven't yet succeeded, it was an affirmation of success. And so at the end of the year, I suddenly said to a roommate of mine, well, I'm not smoking anymore. And he said, oh, I've heard that one before. And no, I meant it. And the next morning, I didn't have any desire. That constant affirmation, I haven't yet succeeded, was an affirmation of success. And when the success finally came, I had a half-used half package of cigarettes in my pocket, and I left it there and handed it out to friends till it was empty. But I never had a single desire. So remember, whatever fault you've got, never blame yourself. Just say, I haven't yet overcome it. The beautiful thing you will find with every fault is that once you have overcome it, you'll wonder what all the fuss was all about. It just doesn't mean anything to you. This is the beautiful thing. It may have seemed so difficult, you'll think, I'll never get out of this. When you're out of it, it ceases to exist. 
So remember, you are not what you seem to be. You are a perfect child of God. Affirm that perfection and you will accomplish, you will accomplish it. Some of his disciples, this was something that, that uh, it, it's an interesting thing. I remember one time, well, I, you've, you've all heard the story about how um, Herbert Fried and I were standing outside the, the building there at Mount Washington. Master was just about to drive off somewhere, and he was giving Herbert some last-minute advice. He was to be the minister of the church in Phoenix, Arizona. He was giving him advice on, on that. And then he paused a moment and he said, you have a great work to do. So I turned to Herbert naturally and uh, wanted to felicitate him. When Master said, it's you I'm talking to, Walter, that's what he used to call me. And uh, from then on, several times, repeatedly in fact, he used to say, um, you have a great work to do, or because you have a great work to do, therefore, etc. One time out at uh, 29 Palms, we were out in the grounds there, and Master said to me, apart from St. Lynn, every man has disappointed me, and you mustn't disappoint me. And he spoke with so much fervor, and I knew that the man hadn't disappointed him spiritually. He had some great men disciples. But what he meant was that to spread a mission like this, some masculine energy is needed. Masculine energy goes outward more. Feminine energy is more inward. And some kind of desire to reach out to people and bless people. When I read his book, even as I was coming across the country, I thought this is such a wonderful mission message. The whole world should know about it. And I've always had this deep desire to share it with everybody. Well, that's what he was talking about. And uh, he wanted me to carry on that mission. Well, I've done my best. And um, I hope successfully. But uh, it has been a wonderful thing to see more and more people brought to God. The only solution for human problems you won't find it. I told you this the last time I was here. It's like that story of Balakrishna when his mother wanted to tie him up to a bedpost so she could do her chores, and he kept pestering her. So he wanted to, she wanted to tie him, and she got a length of string to tie him to the bedpost. It was this much short. So she got some more string and tied it to the other string and tied it again. It was just this much short. And as much string as she could get, it was always just this much short. And you will find that social means of trying to perfect humanity, um, all the means that people have of trying to make things better for man, they're always just this much short. When I was seeking truth, and it was, it was a lifelong search for me, but I sought it first through astronomy, and I sought it through social systems, I sought it through the arts, through music, through anything I could think of. I was 15 years old when I first thought of starting communities. In so many ways, I kept thinking, how can I make things, how can I bring humanity into a, 
a better state. And uh, always I realized I didn't want to think of God. The God that I'd been told about in church, the worst thing about him was he was so boring. <laughs> I just didn't want anything to do with that. But as I got into, the more I sought different paths to him, to truth, I realized that without God, nothing's going to work. And I looked back over history, and the only people who had really made an impact, a lasting impact, on the human race were the avatars, the great saviors, Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, and others. And so I realized then that I have to seek God. And then I began to take the question of God seriously. I'd always push it aside, trying to find some solution. Mind you, I didn't go through devotion. I wish I had, but I had to go through intellect. And fortunately, I was very honest with myself. And so it brought me to this conclusion. I remember this long walk I took out into the night at Charleston, South Carolina. I'd been there trying to study playwriting techniques in order to bring people through beautiful, inspiring plays closer to their truth. And finally, I decided, no, without God, nothing's going to work. So I took this long walk out into the night, and I said, if there's a God, what must he be like? And I thought, well, he can't be a judge. He can't be like a policeman waiting for us to make a mistake and then grab us and put us in prison. It's got to be something else. And I said, well, what is, what, what is there in me that's making me ask this question? Well, I'm conscious. Then if I'm conscious, and this is not something that my brain would be programmed to do like a robot, it's got to be a question that is beyond my brain. If I'm conscious, then God has to be conscious. And if I exist, it must be as a manifestation of that consciousness. And therefore, what I must do is get more op be more open to that. And I remember standing on the shore at, near at the in Charleston, watching the ocean waves coming in, and there were rocks in the way. And when they were, the rocks were farther apart, more of the ocean could come in. When they were very narrow, only a little water could come through. So I said, then I must learn to be more open. And I remember this was. For me, an absolutely staggering revelation. And I remember coming home that night, just dazed with this thought. And I thought, then, my life has to be lived for that. There's nothing else worth seeking. And from that moment on, I began to seek God. And I tried, first of all, because I didn't know. I had never read the lives of saints. I'd never read that anybody had ever known God. And I remember thinking, am I going crazy? Nobody's thought this sort of, sort of thought before. And it was my ignorance. <clears throat> I just had been dabbling in the wrong pools. I could have read the lives of saints, but I was just put off by them. My mother was so devout that I just held it at bay. I know she talked about 
the saints that missed the miracles that different saints had performed. I said, come off it, Mother. It just didn't make sense to me. But now I thought, maybe I'm going crazy. And I went upstate New York, and I went out to the countryside. I thought maybe I just should live closer to nature. And I remember looking at this dewdrop on a leaf and thinking, that is beautiful. But I can't feel it. I can see it mentally. It's beautiful. But it doesn't touch me. It's as if I were a motor working on just one cylinder. And I must learn to... It's I. It's I myself who needs to be changed. And with that thought, I realized, no, I have to seek God. And I wanted to become a hermit, maybe in Brazil or someplace where it was cheap to live. And uh, I wanted to get away from America because I thought there's nothing spiritual in this country. Again, I've been fishing in the wrong pools. There's plenty of spirituality in this country, but I hadn't found it. Anyway, that's when God took a hand. Mind you, when you are serious, God will help you. He sent my father to Egypt to look for oil there. He was an oil geologist. He never was allowed to find oil there. In fact, he did find where oil would be if it was to be found, and Mobile Oil came in later and found oil just where he said it would be. But Esso decided, no, we're going to take him back. So his, his being sent to Cairo was a useless gesture. I think God sent him there just to get him out of the picture. And the very day that I put my mother on the ship to go join him, I went uptown New York and found autobiography of a yogi. I mean, the timing was unbelievable. I, had, I didn't know anything about Indian philosophy. I didn't know anything about spirituality. And uh, I, I, this change was absolutely st stunning to me. I knew there was nothing else for me to do. But if Dad had been there, if Mother had been there, would I have had the courage to leave everything? I don't know. Divine Mother, I guess, wanted to play it safe. <laughs> anyway, I read that book and I took the next bus across the country. I'd never thought to be anybody's disciple. But when I met Yogananda, I said, my first words to him were, I want to be your disciple. And that was 63 years ago. But it's been a wonderful journey. 63 years ago, and all these years, I've devoted my life to helping to finish his mission. And you all are part of the fruit of that. And it's a great satisfaction to me to know that you are here, with your living lives for God. And sincerely, I am really thrilled. So thank you all, too. At any rate, Master said, some of it, well, some of Master's disciples were concerned only with their own salvation. That was fine by him. But he was grateful when he found anyone who wanted to bring his message to the whole world. And that anyone is me. I don't think any of the others had that desire. But thank God I did. Nothing ever excited Master. 
Always he was deeply calm. He could laugh. He could also move quickly when he had to. <clears throat> but he was always calm. Once late for a lecture, he set out at a run. Don't be nervous, the student cautioned. Master replied, one can run nervously or one can run calmly. But not to run when you need to is to be lazy. <laughs> and so he... He uh, he was very energetic when he gave his lectures. He wanted people's energy level to be up to his, or he wasn't going to talk to sleeping people. But he was very dynamic. You know, there was one lecture. Two men got up and started to walk out. He said, "Get right, sit down. <laughs> You'll never hear any words like this again in your life. Sit down." So they. <laughs> <laughs> he was a dynamo, I'll tell you. <laughs> One thing I noted about him was his always blissful outlook on life. I would notice this fact not only in his calm inward expression, but also from the deep bliss I often felt in his presence. It was a tangible reality. Living with him you began to know what this bliss is that you're looking for. Well, I'm going to give you time to ask questions, and so forgive me if I also have to make this a slight experiment. I have this gadget. I just bought it, and uh, we'll turn it up or down according as I can hear you or not. But let's start anyway. Be sure to press. Hmm? Okay. I don't know if that turned it on or off. We'll find. I think it's working now. Thanks for your patience as we try out a couple new systems. Uh, the first one will be this microphone will get passed down the aisles and back. So as the cord comes back past you, please help make sure it gets back to the center aisle. Uh, the second system will be two microphones taped together. Uh, this part, of, one of the microphones will be like this. You can hold this microphone anywhere. The other microphone, try not to touch it or just hold it near the bottom or you may turn it off accidentally. Uh, and the distance, if you get the microphone beyond about this distance, it will not be picking up your voice. So Nefertiti, I hope you have a question. I absolutely, <laughs> I love this name. You know, I was in Egypt uh, some years ago, and I went to the Aswan Dam, and I really had the feeling that, it, now it's all desert, but I had the strong feeling that I had lived there before, and I lived in an ashram. It was all green and beautiful then, but this was a very meaningful thing, and Isis is, was, of course, the Divine Mother then. But anyway, you've got to have a question. <laughs> that I'll make one up. Okay. <laughs> this is totally unrelated to uh, Ananda, but I was struck by your comment of your, about your interest in astronomy, which was also my very first mm. interest. So I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about why you feel you were so attracted to that field. But you know, it's the aesthetics of it, the vastness of the universe. But another interesting thing is that I have some reason for thinking I was Alfonso X of Spain, uh, 
And he was an astronomer. And he also wrote over 400 pieces of music and lots of ways that tie in with my being. Anyway, astronomy is beautiful to the amateurs, boring for the astronomers. <laughs> they have to get all these formulae right and everything. But when you just think of the vastness of it, the thrill of expansion, we have this desire innate in everyone to get to expand the ego into oneness with all life. So that was the reason for my interest. Thank you. <laughs> Any other questions? Hi, Swami. This question is from somebody online. And they say, what is the most practical way for us to realize God is in everyone? If you project onto others your feelings for God, don't let it make it an outward-inward kind of thing, but an inward-outward. When you feel this, there was a time, um, I was in Paris, France, and it was my birthday, and I had a desire to go to a concert. So I went to the church just as they were closing the door. And uh, um, they, they didn't have any more room in the hall. And I saw, I saw in, in French, I said to him, but it's my birthday. And he said, oh, well, in that case, please come in. Happy birthday. So they couldn't put me in the crowd there, but they put me up on the altar, be, be behind the altar in the church there. And uh, the music was absolutely blissful. I was feeling this bliss. And later, in the metro, the, um, the subway, a little old lady came to me, and she said, Do you remember me? And I said, Well, not really. She said, But I was in the audience in the hall tonight. Well, there were 700 people in that audience. How was I to remember her? <laughs> but somehow, because I had felt this bliss, she felt that intimate uh, tie with me. And I remember she sat down and asked for help because she was having trouble with her daughter who was not obedient or something or other. But the more you have of this feeling, project it outward onto others. Don't have it, well, he's, let's see, he's intelligent. All right, God's intelligent. And uh, he has a nice smile, well, that probably. No, don't make it a rational thing. Really... Your understanding comes from the heart, not from the mind. And uh, the reason is a very slow instrument. And it puts bits and pieces together and they make sense. But the heart tells you this is right. Never do anything unless your heart agrees. So you have to have that feeling first inside and project it out onto others. When you feel this, I had this dream, I've told you about it before, but it was in Florence, Italy, and uh, I suddenly saw these thousands of people, and I realized in the dream, the one thing they're all looking for, they may be mafiosi, they may be just arrogant um, businessmen, they could be all types of people. But everybody is looking for only one thing. Happiness, yes. But behind that happiness, they're looking for bliss. Because we are all manifestations 
of that same bliss. We are all dreams of Satchitananda. And that is your basic motivation in everything that you do. Now, when you can feel this bliss inside and project it out onto others, you will share that bliss with them. You will not only see it, they too will feel it. Try it. It's a wonderful experience. Okay, any other questions? Bless you, Swamiji. Thank you for your words of wisdom. This goes back to the astronomy. Uh, Sri Yukteswar talked about the sun's duel. Did Master expand on that at all? Did he add any information? He didn't talk about it at all. I asked him a few questions <clears throat> about the yugas. I asked him, for instance, when people are, um, the people living today in Satya Yuga, will they be coming back? He said, oh, no. He said, otherwise they'd find out too soon. There are plenty of planets for them to go to, and they will go to those planets that are on their level of evolution. But as for the uh, mechanics of that, um, I think Walter Cruttenden's book is a very interesting one, and I think also that Furu's book on the Yugas is very interesting. And I myself have often wondered, where is that duel? I know that there was a time in the newspapers where he said that astronomers have the feeling from the eccentricities in the movement of certain outer planets in our solar system that there is a duel. There is another planet, another sun nearby. It may be a dark sun, a brown star. I don't know. But it is a fascinating subject. I think Cretton said it's serious. And... Uh, I don't know. It seems an awful long way away, but it's a very interesting theory. I've always felt somehow drawn to Sirius, so who knows? Anyway, I wish I could answer you more clearly. And Nita, didn't you have a question? Hi, Swami. Hi. I was uh, rereading the Mahabharata the other day, and uh, reflecting on the death of Bhishma. And I was yes. thinking about Master's comment that I killed Yogananda long ago. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on just the death of the ego and what, what the process is like. Well, you know, Bhishma had the blessing not to die until he himself gave himself up. This is a very deep, symbolic thing. He was lying on the battlefield, riddled with arrows, Still he didn't die until he said, I will leave this body. And he gave a beautiful discourse on uh, kingship. And uh, that's what happens to every ego. In the end, you have to make that decision. No one else can make it for you. I give myself up to God. There is, this is where nirvana comes into the picture. When you reach that point where no, no ripple of uh, any kind of desire, attachment, anything that exists, there's nothingness. And the Buddhists talk about this nothingness. But there's something more than nothingness. And this is where 
you find all these Buddhists, no one seems to want to attain nirvana. Who wants nothingness? But the, the end of nirvana is that when you enter into that, that state of nothingness, when you accept it, suddenly then comes in the bliss of the universe and beyond the universe. So the giving up of the ego has to be your choice. You have to reach that point where you see the void and you say, all right, I give myself into it. That takes a lot of willpower. And I've noticed something, and I've mentioned this in the biography of Yogananda, that Sabhikalpa Samadhi, you would think that would be just a stepping stone to Nirvikalpa. But in Sabhikalpa, there is that little bit of ego left, that when you come back from Sabhikalpa, you come back to the ego. And that can be a doorway to the infinite, or it can be a big test. And some people, after reaching Sabhikalpa, fall again. Wow. Because then they become very egotistical. They suddenly feel, I've got the power of the universe. And I've seen people like that, where their very high spiritual experience, in fact, strengthens their ego. So beware, when you reach that state of feeling that he is your only reality, then don't hang on to this little cord of ego. Say, I give it all to you. It's got to be your choice. No one can make that choice for you. Any other questions? These are wonderful, the system. I can hear it perfectly in my ear. Yeah. She's here. Did you get another beep? Do you need to press No, it's for, I'm hearing you fine. Good. You lost your interpreter there. What's that? You lost your interpreter. I know, it's a pity. <laughs> but you know, I went to town with him, had lunch with him today. <laughs> He's not been banished to Greenland. <laughs> Swamiji, um, you've told us that when Master passed, before he passed, he said, if you want to be close to me, to read my whispers. I'm yes. wondering if you heard him say that, or even if you didn't, if you could expand on that. I didn't, but the whispers shows the right attitude of the devotee in every imaginable circumstance. That's what makes it such a wonderful book. In, for example, there's one there where he's affirming, in, in, in every situation I give myself absolutely to God. It was in the face of a great spiritual test. But you will find in that book beautiful poetic statements of the right attitude under all circumstances. We need that. We need that kind of guidance. And he makes it attractive. That's what makes it a really great book. Any others? 
Swami, are there people who can get Kriya who are not on disciple of Yogananda? Of course. Kriya Yoga is a universal technique. It is to do with your own body. It's centered in the spine. The universal highway to the infinite is the spine. Kriya Yoga just helps to bring you back into the spine to understand that all your reaction, if you see a beautiful sunset and you think how wonderful, it's here that you're enjoying it. If you see something unpleasant and don't like it, it's here also that you're not liking it. And if you can withdraw your reaction from outward things and not say, oh, that wonderful sunset, but feel the inner feeling of joy and know that that's only a stimulus to what you feel, then you're practicing a form of Kriya. So Kriya is a universal teaching, the most ancient yoga teaching possible, the most central yoga teaching possible, and there is absolutely nothing sectarian about it. What they do in India, when you take initiation from a great guru, it's understood that you become his disciple. It's not enough just to get the technique. I know James, I mean, Gene Haupt. Gene Haupt was a disciple who may have done a million Kriyas. I don't know. He certainly did a lot. Sorry. And uh, <clears throat> he left. The Master said he was like a merchant. I've done so many Kriyas. You've got to give me so much realization. It doesn't work that way. When You know, though he stressed Kriya to the public a lot, with us close disciples, the most important thing he stressed was um, attunement. He, uh, you know, in the Bible it says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And received him doesn't mean standing on the, on the dotted line that you're a Christian. It means you receive him in your consciousness. This is the purpose of the guru. You can't get out of ego. Master told this story, and it's well worth remembering, of a man who was being bothered by a demon. And uh, he had read in the Shastras, the scriptures, that if you say a mantra into some powder and cast it on a demon, it will, run, it will flee. And so he got some powder and set it into the, uh, set the mantra into the powder and threw it on the demon. And the demon just laughed at him. He said, before you could even begin your mantra, I myself got into that powder. What the meaning of this is, that the very ego with which you are trying to get rid of your ego is already poisoned by the illusion of being an ego. You can't get rid of it by saying, I'm not this. You have to help it along by affirming it. But really, it's only by attunement with one who has no ego, who is beyond ego. This is the es absolute essential reason for having a guru. Being in tune with him, you find he doesn't, you don't become like him except superficially, but he, you become suffused with that divine consciousness that you're not this ego. And that is the path to salvation. So Kriya is very helpful. 
but finally it's all grace and we have to cooperate with that grace grace i've often said is like the sunlight on the side of a building and if the sun finds no curtains on the windows it come into the rooms but if the curtains are closed then that grace cannot come in that sunlight cannot come in so we need to open the windows of our minds and part of that is attunement with the guru his purpose is never to bring you to himself it's only to bring you to god i remember one time i was sitting at his at master's feet and he was editing his gita and uh, his commentary on the gita and i was thinking what a blessing it was to be his disciple and when he finished his work he asked me to help him stand up and i did and then he looked at me very close like this and he looked into my eyes and he said just a bulge of the ocean he was a principle more than a person and he wanted me to realize it wasn't he as a man he was the infinite in that form so attunement with the guru becomes attunement with god that's why it's important any other some two people over here That's the spirit. <laughs> good evening, Samiji. And uh, just a minute. Now talk. Good evening, Samiji. Yeah, and uh, I have a very simple question as a beginner. What is your motivation to meditate in the morning? <laughs> it's a is this being personal or anybody? Um, it's for anybody. Good, it's a good way to start the day. You know, they say that a person gets up off the wrong side of bed. That means he's grumpy. Really, the affirmation, there are two best times to make an affirmation. When you're going to sleep and carry a thought into the subconscious. This is why it's important to meditate before you go to sleep. And in the beginning of your day, if you can think of God right away, that helps to set the tone for the entire day. So you're coming up from the subconscious and to sow that thought in the subconscious. There's a beautiful story of Mirabai. She was a queen in Chitor. And uh, she got many people chanting the name of Krishna and was, was well known as a bhakta. And she was very disappointed because her own husband would never speak of God. And she used to pray that he be converted and love God. One night they were lying in bed together and she heard him in his sleep saying, Oh, my beloved, come to me. I can't live without seeing you. And he went on talking like this. And in the morning, with glowing eyes, she said to him, I found your secret. He said, don't tell me, don't tell me, please don't tell me. She said, no, I know now what a lover of God you are. And uh, 
He said, I'm sorry you said that. Now I have to leave this body. I promised God long ago that if everybody discovered my secret, then I would leave. So he sat down in the lotus posture and left his body. But that time from the subconscious on, if you can have dreams that are of God, if you can have um, the thoughts even in your sleep of you want God only, we need to bring these teachings down into the subconscious because otherwise the subconscious is always going to give us resistance. So those are the reasons for not only meditating in the morning, but in the evening before you go to bed. Okay? Well, have I beaten everybody into the ground here? <laughs> Hi, Swamiji. I was just wondering, if you could ask one thing of all of us tonight, what would it be? I didn't hear that one. If you could ask one thing of us tonight, what would it be? To love God. Really, that's the only thing. So I've already asked it. Very simple. I, haven't, I have nothing that I want from anybody I've often said to people, I'm not here to convert you to anything but your own higher self. And if you can love God, that would be all the reward I would want. So, love God. <laughs>